Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, good morning. It is great to be with you on this day. It's August the 22nd. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking it was, I didn't go back and look and research the actual date, but it was five years ago, because it was August of 2014, that I started this Bible study. Five years now, in this room. And uh, we started with the Gospel of Mark, went through lots of lots of uh, other smaller books of the New Testament, and uh, in, I've been in the Gospel of John now for I don't know how long, I haven't done the research to go back and look, but we're in the, it's, we're in the 19th chapter, almost done, part four of the 19th chapter, so each chapter, this is, this whole, my vision for this Bible study was always to go verse by verse, unit by unit, get very in-depth with the history not only the history of, of God's people, but the history of the church. How has the church thought about all of this? What is the church's historic teaching versus just what's the thought of today? And to give you a, a good, solid foundation for interpreting the scripture of God, you know, the scripture of God's word, so that we can just not listen to what the... Uh, <laughs> some latest and greatest Bible teacher or preacher says, but let's have a foundation, and, and you have to know the history. So, um, sometimes we look at the Greek, sometimes we look at the Hebrew, we try and look at the original languages, we definitely look at the ancient church fathers, the, the writers of the first three, four, five Christian centuries, those guys were the, those guys were the, the, the first ones to really be thinking about what the scripture means and to share what it means, and it's amazing what we can learn when we look back into their thoughts. So I'm going to begin today with the thought of, uh, I can't make you any promises, we all know this is my last uh, official Bible study <laughs> of this, uh, this era as my uh, serving on staff at the church here, but you know, this is podcast, it is carried uh, over, you know, recorded, and uh, we'll figure out a way one way or another. I can't make any promises yet, but I'm working on different ideas, trying to figure out a way to continue. I've got to finish the book of John, but I, I want to continue. I want to, I'm going to always teach scripture, you know. Uh, I'll be working as an evangelist in the kingdom of God, trying to, to preach and teach uh, and lead wherever I can, but also... You know, as as is reality for today, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to have to be a little bit bivocational. <laughs> so got to have an, an income. So the realities are, I don't know what that looks like, so whether that will interfere with, you know, a normal Thursday 11 o'clock time. So, but I will promise to communicate with you about how that plays out. There's a piece of paper going around the class today that has place for your name, your phone, and your email. Please record your name, your phone, and your email. If you don't have an email, I guess you can't put it down. But uh, if you do, please put it down so that we can contact you. I can contact you and let you know what we're trying to, to keep going here. Uh, so with that said, let's 
pull out our prayer cards. I know not everyone has one, and I apologize for that, but maybe you can look off your neighbors. This is the ancient prayer of St. John Chrysostom. That uh, Well, I didn't know whose it was when I found it. I just loved it. And so it is a prayer before the study of Scripture. Let's ask God to illumine our hearts before we study his scripture today. So if you have a card, look off of your neighbors and let us pray it together. Illumine our hearts, O master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing, the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Let us look at... John chapter 19, beginning with verse 31 to the end of the chapter. We're going to try and get through that section to the end of the chapter today. This is Jesus, as we studied last time, gave up his spirit. Very important to note that Jesus was on control even on the cross. Scripture teaches us that he bowed his head. He said it was finished and that he gave up his life. Affirming his earlier words in the gospel that no man takes my life. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down. So after that, let's let's see how John is, is going to prepare the story for Jesus' burial and, of course, for his resurrection. Let's just look together here at verse 31. I'll, I'll start reading at verse 31 through the end of the chapter. Since it was the day of preparation, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, quote, not a bone of him shall be broken, end quote. And again, another scripture says, quote, they shall look on him whom they have pierced, end quote. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave, So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had at first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus 
and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb where no one had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And with those words, we see the end of the 19th chapter and the preparation for the actual uh, burial story of the, and, and the resurrection in the next chapter. So there's some themes that I wrote on the board that I want to point out that this part of the chapter seems to be talking to us about. And the first one is this idea of proofs. You'll notice that John was very careful to point out, as he always does about himself, and talking about himself in the third person. You know, he said this, this, uh, let's see, I believe it was in uh, verse 35, he said, uh, he who saw it, he's talking about himself. He was there. You know, the one whom Jesus loved, that was another phrase he used in his third person. He himself, we know that he was just the one right there at the cross. Last week we talked about how Jesus gave his mother Mary to the disciple John to keep her and to care for her the rest of her life. So he's speaking about himself in the third person, but he's doing it. He's saying, this witness is bearing testimony. This is true. What's he doing? He's trying to offer us some proofs that this story is true couple of proofs. He's not going to end without a couple of proofs. And he quotes scripture to us. John quotes scripture. He gives us two quotes here. And he relates the incidents around Jesus' actual death on the cross by quoting those scriptures. First of all, it looked as though that, you know, it's the day is getting on. It's nearing sundown. They, they need to uh, make sure that they're dead. Because this is the day of preparation. Now, we'll get into the quotes and the proofs in just a minute, but what might that mean? Do you know what that might mean when he says this is the day of preparation and this is important? It's preparation for, for the Sabbath. I put that up here. Preparation, yes. The preparation for the Sabbath. Okay? Now, there's this is also, it notes, and John notes in there, for this Sabbath was a high day, a high feast day. Because this is the time of the Passover, which is literally called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Passover was a day, okay, always to be on the 14th of the month of Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar. It's a day. But the feast is a week-long feast, like they all are, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the, there's always preparation for the Passover, right? I mean, what, what kind of things might they have to prepare for the... I mean, I meant to say there's always preparation for the Sabbath, Right. So what might they have to prepare for the Sabbath? They're going to have to get rid of all the utensils that's got any uh, leavening in them. Well, that's for the Passover, yes. Yeah. That's a deep. But just for every week. I mean, you got a Sabbath every week, don't you? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't they have to prepare food for the Sabbath? That's right. They've got to prepare that food. You have to have a little thought prepared ahead of time because they weren't going to do the work on the Sabbath. So there's a lot of preparations and things to care for. So in order to get that accomplished, you know, there's just a lot to do. And it's a special high holy day of preparation. And there was the the Jewish people just had this. They had this thing about not leaving the bodies hung on the cross, not leaving the bodies hung on the cross. Now, 
In point of fact, they often had to uh, because they're a Roman, they're a Roman occupied colony. And the Romans are in charge. The Romans did the crucifixion. And the Romans love to pe- keep people hanging on the cross, even after they're dead. And you can, you, I mean, if you can even let your mind imagine the, 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 the buzzards and the ravens and the different things that would come and pick at the flesh and, and the, the horror of what was there. And, you know, as a, te- as a testimony to the, to the people, see what we do to criminals? And a fear you know, reminder. Fear reminder, that's right. So if we look back at the book of Deuteronomy, listen to this. This is one of the things that, uh, that is a proof here that John's trying to offer us. In Deuteronomy chapter 21 and in verse uh, 22 and 23, it says this. So this is the law of Moses. It said, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. Okay, that's a, a speaking about crucifixion. It was a common way to kill people. Okay, the Persians actually really invented crucifixion, but the, 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 the type that we're used to thinking about. But the idea it could be, you know, a tree or hanging him on a pole or something like that. Uh, this idea of being hung on a tree we see in the cross of Jesus. He says, and if you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree. Right there it is. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree. Now, they might have not been looking at actual crucifixion. You know, the, when Moses wrote this, the Persians weren't, weren't ruling the world. Neither were the Romans. Mm-hmm. Maybe they meant hung, literally hung on a tree, you know, with a rope or something, or just nailed him up there or something. But the point was, shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. There's this, there's this scripture, this prophetic utterance that says, he who's hanged on a tree is accursed of God. Okay, Jesus was hung on a tree. Not a literal tree, but wood. Wood comes from trees. So that's the... The analogy there is the cross is made of a tree and Jesus hung on it. So they've got to get that body down. And especially because it's Passover. So the guards come around and they're going to break the legs because if you ever read and study anything about crucifixion, it, it, you know, I did, I did a little extra, and I don't have time in a one-hour podcast to relate it all to you, but I did a little extra refreshing my memory. Uh, Sylvia had given me an article that was written back, I'd, I'd seen it years ago, I didn't have a copy of it though, the Journal of American Medicine uh, did an investigation into the crucifixion of Jesus back in, I think it was 1986, to, to talk about medically what happened in that and as a, as a certainty that Jesus died. And it's just, it's horrible. And I listened to a couple of podcasts that went along with it and recordings and it just, it just is unbelievably horrible what his body went through. <laughs> But in that process of one of the last-ditch efforts to make sure they die, because crucifixion could take a couple of days sometimes, depending on how weak the person was, how bad they'd been scourged by the Romans or something like that, they would break their legs. Because breaking the legs kept the person from being able to push up, you know, to be able to push their body up and exhale. He's hanging there. I mean, it was all designed to make the body 
suffocate in its own, the heart would quit pumping, the, 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 it would induce congestive heart failure, the lungs would fill with fluid, the heart would enlarge, and, and it just all, it was horrible what would happen. And, and you literally couldn't breathe. Everything became an effort. I mean, when we hear, the, like we read about Jesus' last words from the cross and how he had to have that drink. and he spoke. I mean, we, we can't even imagine how painful it was to even usher those words out of his mouth. And so they come along to break the legs because you die fast if you can't exhale. Literally minutes. They could make sure they were dead. Those Romans could. So they're going to do it. They know it's the high holy days. They don't want to leave them on the cross. But they come to, and they do break the two legs of the criminals, but they come to Jesus. He's already dead. John's giving us proofs. He's already dead. And when, when we look at this, we see that what they do is they don't break his legs. Again, a proof. Remember, he quotes scripture there. That's from, uh, that's from the prophet, I believe it's the prophet, is it Zechariah? Zephaniah? I have no, Psalm 34. Psalm 34 says that they have not broken his bones. Let's turn to it and read it for you real quick here. I, I didn't mark these ahead of time, but I, it won't take me long to turn there. Psalm 34, actually one of my favorite psalms. I love that psalm. It says this. He guards all his bones. No one of them is broken. This is a prophetic psalm. The psalms are always about Jesus. Okay, Maybe written by David and others. But, and they're true to their lives, too, but they always have that prophetic utterance about the fulfillment of the life of Christ, the Messiah. Not one of his bones is broken. John is quoting that. It's a proof here. And you can look at the, the crucifixion, you know, the way they would nail the way they would nail the wrist right here below the... I mean, if you just push on your wrist there a little bit, okay, and you'll feel a little hollowness there, there is, there is a place where you can nail that spike just perfectly through there and not break the, yeah. the bones that would be broken in the hand. You, you see what I'm saying? And, and it's been medically proven, scientifically medically proven, that the weight of the wrist, because there's the, the, the way the ligaments are put together and the bones that are around it, they nail through that perfect spot that that was proven to be able to hold the weight of the body with its feet uh, nailed down too. Where the hands would, the hands would just tear, tear away. All these proofs that, that we have in, in this. So, Psalm 34 again. And then again he quotes another scripture. He says, they shall, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. That's Zechariah. Okay, that's Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. Uh, chapter 13, I think. Um, don't have it in my notes here, but I know it's, it's Zechariah. They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And what did the soldier do? Instead of breaking his legs, they pierced him, didn't they? Oh, yes. Took his sword. John doesn't tell us which side that they went into. Okay. When you look at, if you're looking at a picture of Christ or a crucifix, what side is the wound always on? Right. It's always on the right side. How do we know that? Or why do we know that? John didn't tell us that. It's just a picture that somebody's painted. Thought? Got another thought? What's your thought, Carol? Well, the right side um, of the Lord because of his, I don't know. It's tough. You know, John doesn't give us that right side. John, the master of details. I mean, he gives us details that are so meaningful. He doesn't give us that one. Well, also, all your vital organs are there, like the liver and everything. But the right side of the Lord when the, when the water and the blood came out. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. The, the heart. 
everybody thinks of your heart as right up here, right? And you always think your heart, you know, on the left side. Put your hand over your heart or something. Your heart's not really up there, okay? I've, I've got a little defibrillator implanted in my chest right here, so I can tell you the heart's not there, okay? <laughs> but they've got some leads that run over down into the heart, and I look at those x-rays. The The heart's in the middle of the chest, it's, and it's right there protecting. Now, it's maybe a little left off center, okay? It's a little left off center, but it's still there in the middle, and the pericardial sac that surrounds it, a sac of fluid, and and the the, the lungs, it, it, it's always on the right side because they figure they I don't know how they knew this back then, but again, it's just beautiful proof today yeah. that w- the right side of the heart, okay, would have probably uh, pooled more blood in it, okay. Mm-hmm. Because the, the right side of the heart, and I'm not medical, okay? <laughs> Some of you are, but so I could get this wrong. But, the, the, you know, the, the, the left side pumps it out to your body. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got some medical people in here. Good. But the right side does what? I don't know. Receives it from the lungs? Oxygenated from the lungs? Is that right? But the lungs ain't working too good on the cross. Right. You know? And it's and so the 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 heart's not working too good, and blood is backing up, and it's pooling, and the heart's enlarging, and it's pooling in both atriums, okay? But you've probably got a lot of fluid buildup in the lungs. Mm-hmm. So these Romans knew what they were doing. They they'd done this many times, and so this was very common. Just to you know, if they broke the legs, and if they were really in a hurry, they would just go ahead and stab them, because they knew they could kill them with that puncture through the lung through the pericardial sac and into the heart. That's what they knew. You ever see a picture, you know, in Catholic churches are famous for devotion to what's called the sacred heart of Jesus. And you see pictures of the heart, you know, and the, it's got a wound in it. The lance, okay? There are actually people that say, no, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He didn't die of his own free will on the cross. They killed him with that spear. Well, they can't, they can't prove that because it says right here, Jesus gave up his yeah. life. Right. Okay, He was already dead. If they thought he wasn't dead, they would have broken his legs right. and speared him. <laughs> but when they speared him, fascinating. So what we're getting here are some proofs. John's even quoting Old Testament scriptures to give us proofs. Okay, it, it, I, I put preparation down here, and I'm going to come back to that in just a second here. But, but this idea of proof, so these are not necessarily in the order I'm going to yeah, talk about him. But the idea that when they stabbed him, there flowed blood and water, John tells us. Now, medically, probably, there was more water than, I mean, there was more blood than water. Okay? So, some again, some people want to argue with Scripture. They want to disbelieve things. They say, well, see, that's not even factual, you know. Um, what did I just say? There's more blood than water? Mm-hmm. Or more water than blood? No, you said more blood than water. More blood than water. Okay. So, in uh, medically, some people are trying to say that uh, there's some scholars that try to say, or who, I don't know if I call them scholars, try to say that, that there had to be more water than blood. Okay. Um, well, if they perforated his heart, there would have been a lot of blood. But if, if as bad as his, as bad as he was beaten, as enlarged as his heart was, there very well could have been more blood than water. But the idea is, why is it said this way? Because in the Greek language, okay, the Greek language, that which had the majority is always mentioned first in a list of things, okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that it came out in that order, okay? 
So there very well could have been water would come out first, going through the lung first, then up into the heart, okay? So water and then blood. The important thing is that there is water and there's blood, okay? All through Scripture we know that, we, we, that Christ's blood was shed for us. But what about the water? Why is the water important? Why is that symbolic? What is John proving to us? It has to do with baptism. Water is a baptismal vow, yeah. Do you remember back in John chapter 7, way back when we were in John 7? That's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Remember Jesus standing there at the, the great feast uh, at the steps to the temple and, and taking that big pitcher of water and pouring it out? Remember? Yeah. And what he said? Right there on the steps, he said, rivers of living water shall flow forth from your innermost being. Again, we we can go back to Zechariah. Zechariah the prophet talks about this too. This idea of the Old Testament even talks about living water or flowing from your innermost being. We see a beautiful picture. We're about 90% water. It's supposed to be. Something. I know it's a percentage, high percentage, yes. Wouldn't his heart already be stopped? It wouldn't be pumping, so the only blood could come out would be what was in the sack. In the in the sacks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the you know, and, and if that's if that's speared very soon after death, you know, the blood. I, my understanding is a dead. They always say dead bodies don't bleed, but I don't think that's entirely accurate. No. It it still bleeds. It's just the bleeding slows slows down rapidly after death because the heart's not pumping anything. So wherever it's pooled, it's gonna come out. Um, now, here's a, here's a good point, though. I, I want to bring you back to the water and the blood. Why is the water and the blood so important? Why is the water and the blood? Because water is the symbol of life. Blood is the symbol of sacrifice. Okay? In the Old Testament, what they do? They shed animals' bloods. And they sprinkled blood on the altar. But they also poured water on the altar. That's right. The cross of Calvary is our altar. And Jesus poured his blood and water on that altar. Mm-hmm. To this very day, in a properly held, liturgically minded, Eucharistic <laughs> celebration, communion celebration, the, the minister always mixes wine and water. Mm-hmm. You ever notice that? When you're watching them, they take a little cruet of wine, a little cruet of water. Now, there's beautiful symbolism in all that, in in, in I know in orthodoxy, I don't know about in, in some of the others, but I know in orthodoxy the water is warm water, always warm water. And that water represents the, uh, the martyrs of the faith and the warmness of, of them. But the idea is it's blood and water, and we see that from the cross. And we see that from the Old Testament sacrifice of blood and water poured out on the altar. Water is the symbol of life. Blood is the symbol of, of sacrifice. So incredible proofs, incredible fulfillments of scripture right here on the cross. Um, The day of preparation. Let's talk a little bit more about the day of preparation. I I want to, I put creation on here. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, how in the world does a story of Jesus on the cross have anything to do with creation? (laughs) This is so cool when you see it, okay? When you see it, it's really cool. But creation is also, at this time, would be the beginning of the church. Well, I would I would take a little issue with that in that, that, that I believe the church always existed. The Old well, Testament true. people were the church of God. Even the angels in heaven were the church of God. But I know what you mean. Yeah. But but 
people point to Pentecost as the birth of the church. But, but here's, listen to this. This is cool. This narrative of the creation story tells us that on the sixth day, what happened? He rested. Nope. On the sixth day, what happened? What happened on the sixth day? He said it was finished. It is, God finished his work. God finished his work. And then on the seventh day, he rested. He rested. On the sixth day, the preparation day, the day that Jesus died on the cross was the sixth day. Okay, because the Sabbath is the next day, and the Sabbath is always the seventh day. So Jesus dies on the cross as everything is finished. Creation all the way to the cross. I get goosebumps thinking about this. And then on the seventh day of God's rest, the body of our Lord rests in the tomb. And what day did he rise? On the eighth day. Okay. Never the first. You, you, you know, the instinct is, well, the first day of the week. Okay, yeah, because on the first day of the week, Scripture says on the first day of the week, they went to the, yeah, it's to tell us that it was a Sunday. They went on Sunday, the first day of the week. But it's a day like, unlike any other day in all of creation. It's the eighth day. The eighth day. Okay, one of my favorite stores in Wichita, my favorite bookstores is called Eighth Day Bookstore. Okay. And I remember when I was younger and not so smart, I thought, why would you call a book an eighth day? There's no such thing as a bookstore an eighth day. And then I learned what the eighth day is. The eighth day is the kingdom of God. The eighth day is where we are now. The day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is is a new day and a new era. And is the kingdom of God has come among us. And we live in the eighth day, perpetually in the eighth day when you're in the kingdom of God. You with me? Yeah, we'll continue to count off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven as we go through the calendar. But never forget that every time, every time you gather to worship on the Lord's day, mm-hmm. okay, you're gathering to worship on the eighth day. You are transcending. This is why when we come to worship, when we walk into a church, we should, even when we get up that morning, when we go to bed at night, we just start preparing. It's still a day of preparation, isn't it? Saturday should be a day of preparation for us Christians. Or Friday, if you're going to go to church on Saturday night, whatever. But the but, but point is, is, you need to prepare yourself for the sacrifice. Prepare yourself to be part of that sacrifice. Prepare yourself to be part of that experience. And then when that experience comes, when you come to church, you're not just coming to a service. You're coming to something miraculous. You're coming to an assembly, as the writer of Hebrews says it, uh, the assembly of the firstborn in heaven. That's the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Go read that sometime. We don't have time to this morning, or I'll never finish this chapter. But it's a, you are coming to an incredible festival of gatherings of angels and saints and heavenly beings and we are all there around God's throne <coughs> that's a, that's an amazing thing that's an amazing I mean get let your eyes see that when you come to worship so when you're singing a hymn or a song or whatever it is the angels are singing mm-hmm. and no they might not be singing the same song you're singing okay it's just everybody's one big joyful noise in God's ears though Okay, but we're all singing, we're all praising. So there's an ancient prayer that says, in every hour of the day, in every place, you are worshipped, O God. Mm -hmm. In every hour of the day, in every place, you are worshipped, O God. Okay, 
I love that thought. So when you come in, whether your service is at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, Saturday at 5 o'clock, I don't care when your service is. But when your service is, guess what? In every hour of the day, in every place of creation, worship of God is constant. Okay? It never stops. We see that in the book of Revelation in that fifth chapter, and they, they just fall down before him and worship, and it talks about the perpetual worship. Because remember, in heaven, there is no time. Right. In the eighth day, there is no time. We've already trans- This is why Jesus said when he taught us back in John chapter four or five, why we, why we really die when we believe. Because it's when in faith, when we enter into the kingdom of God, we no longer live the way we did as human beings. We are now in the eighth day. We are now in the kingdom. And time has stopped for us. Yes, there will come a time when our body lays down with no breath in it, just like it did Jesus. Mm -hmm. But we are still alive, and we continue to be alive in the kingdom on the eighth day. Okay? To me, the crucifixion is the creation because God took it back by Jesus giving his life. He took it back to set the creation from the beginning right. Jesus said, Behold, I have come to make all things new. In the book of, that's in the end of the book of Revelation. So, in the crucifixion, we see the death, and it's only in death that life comes forth. Okay? All living things die. Jesus talks about this in many places in the gospel when he talks about a grain of wheat that has to fall to the ground. There's no wheat unless the seed dies. And there's no plant unless the seed dies. It gets buried in the ground and dies. I mean, you see that death is truly life-giving. That's a, that's a deep thought right there. <laughs> a real deep thought uh, that I don't have time or notes to go into on that. Um, but l- let me continue. What else did I write up here? Okay, we've covered blood and water. We've covered some of these proofs. Okay, and then certainty. Okay, let's get to certainty. As we walk through this, let's look at the second half of what I read, um, verses 38 through 42. Jesus is dead. The blood and water have come out. It's, it's clear. They're, everybody's in a hurry. They need to get home. They need to get to their preparations. And there's a man that comes forward. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, we're told in Mark's gospel, is a member of the Sanhedrin. That means he's a ruler of the Jews. He's a wealthy man. He's an important man. He's a man with power. He is told right here by us, and John tells us he is a disciple of Jesus secretly. And and then who comes to help him but Nicodemus? Now, who was Nicodemus? We met Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's also also part of this. He's one of the rulers of the Jews. A Pharisee, actually. Mm-hmm. And he comes at night to see Jesus in John chapter 3. Why? Secretly. He, he didn't want anybody to know that he was doing it. I find it absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. That while God wants each of us to have the courage to stand up for the gospel wherever we go, he wasn't afraid to use people that were afraid. Yeah. And and in the, and, and when the chips that. were down though, but when the chips were down and something had to be done, they found the courage through God. They found the courage to step up and because the minute Joseph of Arimathea went, and he had to go to Pilate to ask for this body. We don't get all these details here, but the Roman governor, you are a prisoner of the state. 
They didn't just say, okay, you can take your, fam- take your family and go home, your dead body and go home, whatever. They had to get the body released. Okay, so he had to go to Pilate to get this body released. And that was done quickly, I'm sure, because Joseph of Arimathea was a pretty important guy. And so it also tells us that him and Nicodemus are going to go bury this body in a tomb. And it says, I love the way John says this. Uh, he says it, uh, verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. I think some of the others actually state nearby, okay? Nearby can be, you know, a mile, two miles. I don't know. You know, what is nearby? It's a subjective thought. But John says, no, it's in the place. It's in the place. So wherever Golgotha was, okay, there's a garden right there by it, right there in that place. And I love that because that's con- that, that is what... Ancient tradition shows us as the burial place, I mean, the burial place and the crucifixion place of Jesus is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. The Church of the, we talked about this one week. If you recall my thoughts on that, you know, there's the, when you go to Israel, the garden tomb, it's a ways away. Okay, and it's beautiful because it really shows us what a garden tomb would have looked like, okay? But I don't believe it's necessarily the tomb of Jesus. But history in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, massive building built over on it, which which at the time of Jesus would have had a hillside with a cross on it and an area of a garden at the foot of it. That tomb, history teaches us, is the burial place of Jesus. And how do we know that? If we go back to two places that I'm pretty confident of in Israel are the birthplace of Jesus and the burial place of Jesus. Why am I so confident? Because in the very early 300s, okay, the Roman emperor who was converted to Christianity, Constantine, one of the first things he did was send his mama, <laughs> the queen mother, her name was Helen or Helena or Helena, send her to the Holy Land because he wanted her to research all that she could and find the holy sites the holiest site she could. And that's what she did, the balance of her life. And she commissioned churches to be built wherever she found holy sites. She found people that said, this is an actual piece of the wooden cross. And she found other people that said, this is right where Jesus was born. And she found other people that said, this is where he was laid in the tomb. And we're talking 200 years after Jesus. Okay? I think that's pretty reliable. Okay? How do we know that George Washington really lived at Mount Vernon? Prove it to me. Well, that was over 200 years ago. That was about 200 years ago. Word of okay? mouth. It's, it's a reliable word of mouth because it's only 200 years old. But you wait another 2,000 years, and guess what? Somebody will say, George Washington never lived at Mount Vernon. You know, who's gonna, you know. So, but, but there was this strong testimony, and it's been held over and over to the point that they build these massive, over the centuries, built these massive churches as memorials. As to preserve them as holy sites. Mm-hmm. So if and when you ever go to Jerusalem or the Holy Land, I hope you all will, uh, if you ever do, don't go there and say, well, I wish they hadn't built this big church here because then I could have seen that, you know, it would have looked better. Don't do that. Those, If they hadn't done that, there'd probably be a Walmart there. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> or some parking lot or something. I mean, it, thank goodness. 
They built those sites to preserve. And maybe you can only look through this glass in the floor and say, wow, that's the, that's the place. <laughs> it's so awe-inspiring. Okay, so awe-inspiring. So, certainty. John is writing this. Remember, John's gospel is different than all the other gospels. He wants, he's writing to believers. The other three are writing chronicles or chronologies more of the life of Jesus. They want to get some details uh, differently. They're, they begin with uh, narratives about uh, when Jesus was a baby and all of that stuff and lineages. But John is a mystical, theological gospel to teach believers the deep truths of God and the faith. Okay? It, to really understand the Gospel of John, it's not the place you should probably start if you're trying to disciple a, a non-believer or witness or something. Gospel of Mark would be a great place to do that. Um, but the Gospel of John is the deep place where it's my favorite book in the Bible, that and First John, and I come out with both of those two, because I think First John is this, this little five-chapter nutshell of everything we need to know about God and humanity and sin and salvation and life all in five little chapters. So if you want to disciple a new believer or, or you want to lead someone, one of the best places you can lead them in Scripture is the book of 1 John. And we've done the podcast on that. It should be up somewhere if you ever want to go back and listen to it. We've studied it before. But that that book of 1 John, uh, in fact, I took a challenge once. by I, I was an author in a book. can't remember the book right now. I can't remember. But the book taught, it challenged me, read the book of 1 John every day for, for 30 days. Okay, take that challenge sometime. Read the book of 1 John, and I've given that challenge to many people through the years. It's life-changing. It don't, it's a short book, five chapters, you can do it in 15 to 20 minutes easily. Read the book of John, 1 John every day for 30 days. And after the first couple of days, you're going to have a pen in your hand, and you're going to have a notebook, and you're going to be underlining stuff, and you're going to be going, wow. And you're going to be going, oh, yes. And you, it's just going to change your life about how you look at God, how you look at each other, how you look at sin, how you look at love and redemption and faith. It's all there in that little book. So the Gospel of John, boy, it's the deep it's the deep story. Um, make sure I didn't miss anything in my notes here. Okay, yes, let's talk about the burial. So Nicodemus comes along bringing 100 pounds of myrrh and spices, aloes, it says to us. What does 100 pounds of, of myrrh and spices look like? It would be a great big bag. A lot. It's got to be heavy. You know, it's not potatoes, I understand that. You know, who could live with 100 pounds of potatoes? But, but it's still, it's 100 pounds. That's a lot. And... This is the, it says it's a burial custom of the Jews to use these myrrhs and spices, but not 100 pounds. 100 pounds shows us this is a very royal treatment. This is a very royal treatment. Yeah, did I see a comment? Did you want to make a comment? Wouldn't he probably have had one of these servants helping with the... That's what I'm thinking. I don't know if they had invented wheelbarrows yet, but <laughs> if they hadn't, maybe probably, that was why they needed to. Probably three or four. Well, stars. they had carts. You know, the wheel was around. Yeah. So they, I'm sure 100 pounds. That's a lot. So what did they do with it? One of the things we know that Jews did not do and still do not do is they do not embalm the body. Okay? They did not believe in, in that. They put the linen and put all those spices and stuff. 
they lay it in there and layer it and keep adding to it until they've used up all of the spices and stuff. Close, but not quite. What they did was they put out all of that bed of herbs as a bed. They spread it out. They wrapped the body in linens, okay, and then placed the body on the bed of aromatics, okay, the pungent, fragrant smell of these myrrh and herbs. And that way, the main purpose was to give the smell of beauty and life and royalty and not the smell of death because the bodies decompose fast in the heat, especially over there. And that, so, so that was the idea. It would be preserved for a long time around there. It didn't preserve the body from decaying. It preserved the smell. And it was, a, it was beautiful. So remember what... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But when we, when we study the next chapter, when we start talking about the resurrection and them going... you know, Remember, it says they were bringing uh, things to anoint the body with because they didn't have time to do the full ritual, the full burial custom. So they would actually anoint the body. They anoint it with oil, like Jesus they, said. Sure, sure, Jesus yeah, about, absolutely. Yeah. They would anoint the body with oil and, and pray prayers and, and beautiful customs, but they didn't get a chance to do that. It was too big of a hurry. They had to wrap the body, get it in there, and get it in the tomb. Um, so don't miss the fact. This was a royal, as royal as they could make, a rushed burial. As a, a brand new tomb. Why is it a brand new tomb? Why is it important that it's a brand new tomb? And why does he say, look, read with me here, a new tomb where no one had ever been laid. Why is that important? Because this is, this is Jesus. This is our king, our, our savior. It, uh, it, it feels fitting. right. It feels right because he's the king and the savior. Right. But let's even go beyond that and think, hmm, what could that bring us any kind of certainty or proof of? Because first of all, most tombs you had more than one body in. Mm-hmm. Okay, they were hollowed out of rock, and you put several bodies in there. But not this one. Remember what they did with Jesus' tomb? They sealed it with a big, yeah. huge stone. Yeah. What? Why is it important for us to think there was only one body in that tomb? Because they didn't want anybody else's visitors, and they didn't want any other bodies or families. Because he was alone. I'm trying to lead you like a lawyer leads yeah, a witness. Okay? Exactly. You're not exactly. quite there, but I, can, I know what you think. All the things you're, all your thing, all the the things you're thinking are very natural and very good, yeah. but we got to get to the meeting. What? Resurrection. See, no, it, that's good. Too. What? Say it again. Resurrection. The resurrection. Yes. There was nobody else in that tomb that could have been resurrected. That's right. You see? That's right. Okay. <laughs> There's nobody else. They couldn't switch bodies with somebody else or say, well, maybe it wasn't Jesus who was resurrected. If, if there's more than one body in there, they could go back. He was alone. Very good proof of the resurrection. Okay. The only body that was ever laid in that tomb is not there anymore. Yeah. Uh, so the little things that we miss if we don't look deep between the lines yeah. in, in the history of Scripture. Um, no mistakes. John is carefully writing to us all these details. Decades after his ministry with Jesus, decades later, you know, maybe 40 years later, we don't know, 40, 50 years later, maybe 60 years later. You know, we know John was lived to the end of the century is somewhere around there, and, and, and this book was written late in that century. We don't even know the exact year it was written, but, but probably somewhere in the neighborhood, of, you know, 50, 60 years later, he's writing all this down. 
Why? Why is he? Because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit wanted believers to know these things. We can read Matthew, Mark. He doesn't repeat things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do very often. He doesn't, he's not worried about that. He needs to tell the deep theological symbolism and meaning of the gospel and the story of Jesus, of his death, his resurrection, his life. So um, with that, we kind of come to the end of chapter 19. The next time we're together, wherever that will be, <laughs> wherever that will be, let's trust that it will be. I can't promise it, but I, it's got to happen, you know. we got to we come to the tomb the first day of the first day of the week we come to the tomb with Mary Magdalene the first day we're together so if you make sure you have signed the list I need your name phone number and email so I can communicate with you it's back there in the back make sure I have that so that we can communicate with you exactly where the next meeting will be um, let's I, I, we Always close. I always close with a prayer. Amen. Let's close with a prayer. Thankful to our Father for the beauty of His Word. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of the Gospel of John, for the gift of your Holy Word, for the gift of life. Father, our hearts are just full. Thank you for the gift of this class, this study and those that have come today, but through all the years, continue to offer your blessing upon them, upon us, as we endeavor to continue the lifelong pursuit of studying your holy word, that we might grow in our spirits, deep in our spirits, to live the life of Christ in this world, as he would live it through us. So thank you now, and we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, unto ages of ages. And everyone said, Amen. 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 This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.